Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, a nationally known gerontologist, the executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation, member of the board of the National Council on Aging, and a past board chair there. And I don't know how you have time to do anything else. Well, you know, in between things. Busy, busy, but that's good. I am very busy. I have a T-shirt. I am very busy. (laughs) I like that. We've got a great guest coming up who you met and heard her talk about the, the kind of project she has with Project Achieve, which is really beneficial to caregivers and ultimately to care providers like physicians, healthcare providers. Hospitals. Well, and there's probably not a caregiver listening out there that has not had the hospital experience. In fact, the caregiving may have started with a hospital experience. As a negative. Well, and a lot of times, there are some positives, but most of us have had a negative hospital experience. And so Dr. Mitchell is working on a project to try to work with health hospitals and health systems to find out what what was their experience at a hospital, what was the patient experience, what was the caregiver experience, and help try to make those positive, which, you know, I just can't support that idea enough. And we're going to find out about that in just a couple of minutes when we uh, talk with her. I want to ask you first, because it, it is so true, you had mentioned to me off the air, you remember when you weren't supposed to eat eggs? That's right. Everything that was bad is good, is bad, is good. I know wine is is the one in the uh, topsy-turvy world right now, is bad, is good. Today is bad. So eggs were bad, and now they are good. And they're still the same egg. Well, it's the same old egg. Um, This was a study in the New York Times. I'm sorry, not New York Times, in Harvard Health News. So Harvard, kind of an an institution we've heard of. Pretty good credibility. And they published a journal article in Heart Magazine where researchers found that people who eat an egg every day as opposed to dying um, have an 18% lower risk of dying and a 28% lower risk um, of having a stroke. Well, and I should the eighteen percent lower risk of dying from um, a cardiovascular disease. Wow. So you know they're no, they didn't get heart disease. They're not having strokes. And this was a study with four hundred thousand people from age thirty to seventy nine. I mean, you and I quote studies. There's 200 people in the sure. study, 40 people in the study. This is almost Huge. half a million. Um, they were all in China. I don't know if eggs in China are different than eggs here. I suspect they're very similar. Um, and it was over. A, it was a nine-year study. And so the people who ate an egg a day, which is exactly the opposite of what we heard for years and with the cholesterol, um, they didn't develop as much cardiovascular disease, heart disease, heart attacks, stroke. I mean, it was the list went on and on. So go have that. I just recently um, was on a cruise, lucky enough to be able to do that. And I had eggs every day. And now I'm feeling so much better about that decision. (laughs) That's cool. 
So good, good job. And for those who uh, who didn't hear you talk about this last week, uh, you cruised up to Alaska. I did so. I had plenty of time to eat those eggs (laughs) on the way. It's really far. I like that. So (laughs) eggs are good now. They're good. Stay tuned for a couple weeks, and we'll we'll see. Yeah, we'll tell you how bad they are. Now you have more information on AFib and stroke. And as one who uh, was diagnosed with AFib, I want to hear what you have. Well, again, this is from Harvard Health News, and it's research that we're looking at. And a lot of us know someone that has AFib. Yeah, you know me and your dad. Um, yes, we've got uh, multiple multiple people and some friends. Um, and so AFib is that chaotic, irregular heartbeat. And sometimes it's minutes, it's hours, it can last for uh, days at a time. Uh, and the, the concern with AFib is that clots can form in the heart, uh, and that can lead to a stroke. So the new research is saying that these bouts of AFib, which were previously considered low risk, may actually increase a person's risk of stroke. And so they had a study with 2,000 people that where they monitored their heart, um, the AFib, for about 14 days. And those that were not taking an anti-clotting medication, so this is important, it's people with AFib that are not taking anti-clotting medication, anti-blood thinners, um, and they found that when they followed them for five years, that the, the people that didn't have the medication had 11% increase in stroke than those that did have. Well, that would be intuitive. That would just make sense. Well, you would hope that you, you know, if you have AFib, that it's diagnosed, that your doctors put you on some sort of a treatment. So hopefully people listening are like, oh, yes, I am taking anti-clotting medication or my loved one is, and I feel pretty good about that. But if you have any questions, if you or someone you know has AFib, you might want to ask the question. And it is... uh widespread. It, it's not very something common. that's rare. Very no, no, common. No, very, very common. So so just make sure that you're being treated um, correctly and that you feel good about the information that you have. That's good advice. Next up, it turns out that uh, millennials are going to start becoming caregivers in larger numbers. What does that hold for the care recipients? Good luck. Well, well first of all, every time I hear the word millennial, I'm trying to figure out what does that mean? Who is a millennial? I know what a boomer is, and I know what it, I think I know what Generation X is. But for those of us who are slow on demographics, if you are currently age 18 to 34, you're a millennial. You are a millennial. So there you go. And boomers are turning 65 at a oh, huge yeah. boomers rate. Boomers are born 1946 to 1964. So they're the big bulge. Um, and, and they're the ones that are causing these poor millennials to have to be caregivers. Because in this country, the average caregiver is a 49-year-old white female. Um, but that, that pro- sort of profile is changing because now 25% of caregivers are millennials, age 18 to 34. And of those, 25% are Latina or Latino. Um, and 20% are African-American, so a much more diverse group right. of caregivers. Younger, now let's think what's going on if you're 18 to 34. You may be in college. Um, you may be at your first job trying to hang on. You may have just gotten married, may just have had kids. Um, and so this is not a time of your life that you're really planning on taking care of somebody um, who is older uh, and, and having that those caregiving duties foisted on you or have volunteering for caregiving. So the good news 
in all of this is that leading age, and I used to work at leading age in Washington, D.C., formerly the American Association of Homes and Services for the Aging. Wow, the new name is much shorter. Um, sure. But they are a, a leader in residential care facilities and community-based care, and they have started a campaign called Carry the Conversation. Um, and so if you're a millennial or know a millennial who is a caregiver, have them check out the leadingage.org website because the goal here is to educate people who are younger, A, about caregiving, but more importantly, B, is to help them start thinking about their own long-term care. Because if you have provided care for someone else, you know, you automatically think, is this going to happen to me? Am I going to be next? Or is this going to be a similar situation? So when you're young, when you're that young, you can actually afford long-term care insurance. You could actually start a small savings program, putting away a little bit of money every paycheck to pay for your own long-term care. Because as you and I have discussed, most people think they will never need long-term care, but wake up, hello. We're living longer. <laughs> and there's a lot more disability out there. People who are diabetic don't age really well. Um, there are a lot of families that have different diseases run in the family. Um, and if you're not taking care of yourself, I'm going to be real blunt. If you're not taking care of yourself, the odds are you are not going to age as well as you could, and you may end up needing some help. Absolutely. Now, in just a minute, more on Carol's favorite animal. First, I want to tell those of you who have just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. And in just a couple of moments, we'll be talking with Dr. Suzanne Mitchell, a Project Achieve and Patient-Centered Outcome Research that's made a difference in caregiving. Right. And let me just wrap up the last story we were talking yes. about, young people taking care of themselves. Um, it's We're not casting blame on anybody. Um, it, it really is up to all of us to make good decisions or, or try to make better decisions along the way. So no blaming involved. Just, you know, we've got to take responsibility. And take care of yourself. Well, I mean, and, and I did. I, I worked for Leading Age. Here's the end of the story. <laughs> I worked for Leading Age, and they offer long-term care insurance. I was in my 30s at the wow. time. And so I still have it. I have carried so it all of these years. It is portable. I've had it all these years. Um, it's actually still not a bad benefit. Uh, and so I have cool. a little bit of, you know, padding and comfort there if anything happens. Makes your husband Ernie Apple happy. It's, we yeah. both have it. We both got it because we both have Alzheimer's in our family. Oh, wow. So there you go. So tell me about naked mole rats. <laughs> well, you know what? For those of you who don't know what a naked mole rat is, go ahead and Google it and then back up from your phone or your computer because you will be terrified. And it's a picture <laughs> that you cannot unsee. You can't unsee the naked mole rat right. because just imagine it. It's much worse than whatever it is that you're imagining. It is one ugly animal. But they're in the news again. But they're in the news because what is it about naked mole rats that is so... Um, interesting they never get cancer never ever get cancer and so where scientists for years have gone studying worms and rats um, naked mole rats are, are a more complex mammal more like people than a worm except for the nakedness moleness <laughs> well, worms <them>. are naked <laughs> but um so you know you think about drug trials they're trying to reduce disease by 10 percent Naked mole rats are 10 times more cancer-resistant. Wow. Not 10%, 10 times. So they just don't get it. So uh, there was an article 
um, in Next Avenue that was talking with a researcher who studies naked mole rats. Um, and what she was saying is that she is, it has come to her in studying naked mole rats that the key to preventing cancer is to prevent aging. Which is this? There's a there's a new school of thought now that says there are about ten horrible diseases: uh, cancer, Alzheimer's, diabetes, all of those diseases, heart disease that go up. The risk factor goes up with age. So if we can reduce aging, we can reduce the diseases. And so they're looking at naked mole rats to try to inform us about maybe a prescription drug that could replicate that secret ingredient in naked mole rat genes. And as long as it doesn't make me look like a naked mole rat, <laughs> I, am, I am okay with that. Um, but it's fascinating. I mean, the, the, there are animals in the world who don't necessarily get old, that don't get cancer. And why is that? We're finding out. And maybe it'll uh, cool. point us in the right direction. I wonder if you'd eat one and have that same protection. I don't recommend eating naked mole rats. I just and we'll don't. stay away from that. <laughs> if you've just joined us, uh, we're about to welcome on Caregiver SOS on Air, Dr. Suzanne Mitchell. She will join Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that uh, you're newer to WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. Nurse practitioner Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Be there. Well, we are so pleased you have stuck with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, and we've been promising you that Dr. Suzanne Mitchell would be joining us, and indeed, she is here. Suzanne earned her medical degree from Bowman Gray School of Medicine at Wake Forest University, same university that Tim Duncan attended, former Spurs ball player. She completed her residency in family medicine at White Memorial Medical Center in L.A., earned her master's degree in clinical research from the University of California in Los Angeles and a bachelor's degree from Bentley College in Massachusetts. And Suzanne, thanks for joining us on Caregiver SOS On Air. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Well, you know, this, as I mentioned to you right before we came on to the air, you know, I, this the idea of asking people, especially caregivers, about their experience with hospitals and the healthcare system <sighs> is something that is relatively new, as odd as that may sound. Um, but talk a little bit about Project Achieve and, and why you think um, this type, you know, the patient experience and the caregiver experience is an important piece of a healthcare system. Sure. So um, the, the um, concern over care transitions um, is, has been... Um, kind of on 
people's radar for a while, for probably about 10 years or more. Um, people have been, researchers primarily have been writing and, and studying the processes of care um, that people experience going from hospital to home. Um, and with a, a primary lens of looking at, you know, what might happen that would lead people prematurely back to the hospital uh, where they would be readmitted. Um, and interestingly, there's a, a huge abundance of literature studying those processes, but primarily most of it is from the lens of the healthcare system. So really looking at how the healthcare system perceives the patient's experience and the delivery of care, um, leaving a big gap in our understanding of what the patient who's on that journey and their caregiver are actually experiencing. And so um, there was a kind of a blind spot in the picture of what, uh, what actually happens when, pe when a person is admitted to the hospital and then discharged to recover primarily at home or sometimes with a stop in a nursing facility for uh, rehabilitation. Yeah, what, what was the blind spot? The blind spot was what actually happens. You know, we really assume that we knew what was happening when people left the hospital, that the care plan that we designed at the hospital was, you know, actually implemented um, as designed when people left the hospital. And what we, you know, what we learned was that a lot of times people um, have, have problems along the way that affect um, the effectiveness of that implementation plan. But we didn't see that because we weren't asking patients and caregivers what their actual experience was. And that was the whole point for Project Achieve. Project Achieve was funded by PCORI, which is the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. And PCORI's mission is, you know, to really fund research that focuses on things that matter to patients and caregivers. Um, and that hasn't always been true for research, um, that the questions that are asked are things that have are of high importance to patients and caregivers. And so the question PCORI wanted to address was, what is the patient and caregiver's experience in care transitions and, um, and what matters most to them? And so it, when we started Project Achieve, the first thing we recognized is that we needed to really understand what was important to patients and caregivers. Well, and this really is novel thinking. Um, to, I think the healthcare systems in the past, we really built them on, um, you know, care processes and what worked better for the healthcare system uh, and making versus the patient versus the patient. I mean, it's not to say that patients were totally ignored, but caregivers were really out in left field. Um, and that type of feedback, I'm sure everybody listening to the show has had an experience in a hospital where they didn't feel like they were being heard or they didn't understand what was going on. They well, were lost. Process, and I, and I understand uh, you really spent a lot of time understanding this as well, Dr. Mitchell, at the point of discharge, and I was recently in a hospital for, not, not life-threatening, but for knee replacement surgery, uh, and at the point of discharge, uh, the, the nurse uh, who hadn't been a nurse caring for me came in with a bunch of papers and said, here, read these, sign them, and bye-bye. Uh, yeah, the old heave-ho. <laughs> and, and most of it meant nothing to me. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, you know, the, there are a lot of assumptions that aren't made explicit. Like, for example, that you would have somebody at home to take care of you if you had a problem 
or to help you during your recovery process. Right. Um, or, or even that you understood what you were supposed to do um, when you got home. And the problem was that people often would report that they under, they thought they understood, but then when they got home, they described it as being in the wilderness um, or being dropped in a lake when you really couldn't swim. And um, this kind of feeling like, ooh, this isn't working out so well, and I don't know who to call for a lifeline. So um, a real sense of being on your own, and I would say in the, in the most, um, you know, worrisome cases, a sense of abandonment. So you talked with patients, and you talked with caregivers, and you came away, there were some common themes uh, when you got the responses to the questions, what were the most common findings or what did they say most often about their experience? Sure. So interestingly, um, it was not um, surprising. I don't think to a patient or caregiver it would be, it, w- it would seem almost obvious um, that the most con- so of the 238 patients and caregivers that we interviewed across the country, the most common thing was the desire to feel cared for and cared about by the providers, by medical providers, and by the people who were taking care of them. And um, there was a true sense of vulnerability communicated um, in that request. So we were really trying to identify what was most important to them in during that period of care transition. And feeling cared for and cared about was a wish that they didn't always have fulfilled. And so... Um, that was probably the most commonly um, reported desired outcome. And then secondly was um, a sense of wanting kind of a clear and unambiguous accountability for their well-being. You know, there was this idea that there was, you know, when everyone's in charge, no one's in charge. And so they didn't really know who was responsible because so many people were visiting them either in the hospital or even at home. They would get phone calls from strangers. They would have people coming from different um, home care services, and they really didn't know in the end who was accountable for their well-being. So that was another um, wish for on the part of patients and caregivers. And then um, the other kind of major uh, theme was a desire to feel prepared and capable to carry out the care plan um, and a commonly reported experience of feeling overwhelmed, it, that that the expectation for self-care was getting greater and greater, and and that they were feeling less and less qualified to provide that care. For those who've just joined us, I want to remind you, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, having a conversation with Dr. Suzanne Mitchell. Project Achieve is her project and her achievement, talking about ways in which patients and caregivers can be better served and the entire healthcare delivery system uh, can provide a better outcome. Right. And, you know, when we speak with our, our own doctors or, or, you know, talk about caregiving in general, since the WellMed Charitable Foundation, we work every day with caregivers. We talk about, you know, that care plan. And if a caregiver a doesn't want to do something, it's game over. Or if they can't do something, it's game over. That care plan is never going to be implemented. And so that's kind right. of an unpleasant surprise for the doctors. But if they don't ask, are you willing and able to do this, 
um, you know, are you are you prepared? Then it's just all kind of thrown up in the air, and you're not going to know what's really going to happen. Well, one of the interesting issues, Carol, and and, and uh, folks who oversee Medicare got involved with you all on a grant application, where it turns out the caregivers were doing a lot of quote medical procedures, and they didn't think so. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and and that story. Uh, for you um, is that we had applied for one of the PCORI grants, actually, and the when we didn't get the grant, like, you know, we're glad you did, Dr. Mitchell, um, <laughs> but we, we were turned out that that particular reviewer said, you know, you're, you're talking about tasks that nurses do. Caregivers would never do this. We would have to pay them to do this. This is not reality. And, yeah. <laughs> and we were like... Ooh, which one of us is under the rock? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that you know that was the problem with this work, and and just um, to be transparent, um, uh, Dr. Mark Williams from University of Kentucky is the um, principal investigator of Project Achieve, and uh, there are a number of investigators that have made Project Achieve possible, and I'm I'm proud to be one of them. And I think you know one of the problems with these findings was. You know, this wasn't, uh, for patients and caregivers, it was like, well, yeah, like, <laughs> tell me something I don't already know. And for the healthcare system, it seemed like it was too, you know, too almost too simple. But in fact, this is, you know, this is what most people thought they weren't getting. You know, this is what they wanted and they weren't getting. And for those who did have positive experiences, you know, there was a profound, um, communication of trust and loyalty and um and a sense of confidence in their care that you just didn't you know you couldn't um elicit from people who had who more likely were to share um experiences of feeling you know either abandoned or at the very least not being able to access the care they needed when they needed it now we're going to talk more about this stick with us doctor we're going to come right back to you talking with uh, dr suzanne mitchell on uh, Project Achieve. I, I want to discuss as well the uh, listing you have uh, directed at caregivers and, and how can providers help. It's something that would be useful for caregivers to understand what you might expect of your provider. I'm Ron Aaron along with our co-host Carol Zerniel. You listen to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. This is fascinating stuff. We're talking about Project Achieve and ways in which the caregiving experience, the caregiver, the patient, and the hospital and the healthcare delivery system can all work together for the betterment of patient care. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, and we're talking on our Caregiver SOS on air hotline with Dr. Suzanne Mitchell with Project Achieve. And you have a list, Dr. Mitchell, that came out of your study that talks about what providers can be expected to do. I love that list. Yes. So we um, identified several um, kind of uh, behaviors or processes of care that supported the likelihood of patients experiencing the outcomes that they wanted um, or were, were found most important to them. Um, and among those were uh, primarily using compassionate, empathic language and gestures. So people would very vividly recount to us um, examples of when physicians simply sat down and um, spoke with them in a way in language that they could understand uh, with a sense of compassion and empathy for what they were going through. And this 
always communicated a sense of concern and being cared for, which led to a feeling of trust and confidence. Um, and, 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 I'm sorry, part of that includes knowing the patient's name. Absolutely, yes. So knowing the patient's name, um, knowing what their, uh, what their um, illness experience has been, or at least inquiring about their illness experience, giving, you know, if a physician gave the patient um, their business card with their phone number on it, that was a, that was a, a major demonstration of trust that most patients didn't even take advantage of. Right. But it, it, it established a level of trust between the patient, the caregiver, and the physician that, you know, was, it was very meaningful for uh, patients and caregivers I think um, some of the other things were um, anticipating needs. So, you know, patients would say, look, I've never been through this before. I, I feel like this is your, you know, this is your wheelhouse. This is your um, profession. You kind of have to help me know what to anticipate when I get home. Um, and we saw some um, examples on some of our site visits as part of Project Achieve where um, there were discharge case managers who had home health experience in their career, and they really understood the home environment, and they were really excellent at helping prepare families for the needs in the home once they transitioned. Not having that kind of experience in the home, um, I think, limits the care manager's ability to anticipate and ask the questions of patients and caregivers that help set up um, a scenario for success. Right. So that um, an example of that might be, um, you know, this person's not going to be able to walk unaided for several days. They're going to, you're going to need help going to the bathroom um, so that they know that, you know, somebody's going to have to shoulder some of that weight or they're going to need a wheelchair or if they need a wheelchair, their house may not be wheelchair accessible, but just anticipate or a level of pain yes. would be an example, you know, of, of things that you might want to know in advance. Yes. And, you know, things like transportation were were commonly raised. Um, occasionally it was, you know, pet care, you know, having somebody to take care of the pet uh, while the person was recovering. That's a good point. So, you know, there were things that you wouldn't anticipate if you didn't, you know, if you weren't asking or you didn't know. Like if you hadn't had that experience of um, supporting people in their homes, you might not know to ask, do you have a pet that needs care for? you know, needs caring for. I had a knee replacement. They never asked me, do you have any animals at home? We've got a 100-pound dog and three cats. Yes, yes. And, you know, some people would leave the hospital early to, because they knew they had a pet um, at home. So, you know, anticipating needs um, is about asking people questions they wouldn't even know to anticipate. And that was also very common, um, commonly mentioned outcome. The other was um, having uninterrupted care. And I think that's one that the healthcare system really needs to listen to because um, it's people want more than a person with a credential after their name. They want someone to, they want to feel known. And, they, and it also means knowing more than a person's name. It means, you know, uh, communicating in a way that helps people feel known and feel understood. And so, um, you know, having consistent, uninterrupted care is another more specific way of experiencing continuity. You know, continuity isn't just always having a doctor or a nurse available, you know, any doctor or any nurse. It's having someone that you have um, some kind of relationship with, even if it's 
the same doctor every day during the hospitalization. Right, which which does make a big difference. You know, as you were saying, Ron, somebody you've never seen before, the discharge person comes in and you've never met her and she gives you papers and forms and you don't know what they are and you don't know who she is and she doesn't sound like she knows she much no about what's going was, on other right. than a diagnosis and yeah, that's what you're that's going true. home for. Now, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zerniel and we're talking with Dr. Suzanne Mitchell, and she is with Project Achieve and has other distinguished uh, credentials uh, behind her name. And as we talk uh, about what providers can do to help, uh, how have you communicated this information to providers? Because there are a lot of hospitals in this country and a whole lot of providers. Yes, and and I think that um, that's a that's a challenge. And how do you change healthcare? I think that you know we've. There's a lot of literature that points to the importance of communication and trust, um, and yet, you know, we also balance that with the pressures of efficiency um, that make care feel transactional sometimes. And and sometimes it's only the main difference is how we communicate with our patients, um, not necessarily the care that we deliver. You know, the care that we deliver may not be that different, but how we deliver it, the attitudes and the caring that we approach patients and families with, I think really changes their care experience. Um, so and then does, the, does this go back to medical school? Because some, you know, one of the thoughts going around is there's too much science in medical school, and you were talking about connection, confidence, trust, communication. Is there enough of that? Uh, in medical school for the new doctors to understand that's a huge part of their job? So that's interesting because another role that I play is as course director for the um, introductory medical interviewing course at uh, Boston University. And, um, you know, I personally feel that um, we need to increase the emphasis on relational competence. That's what I would call it, our communication skills and understanding how important that is to not only our, you know, our therapeutic alliance, but also our diagnostic skills. Um, I think that medical education is increasingly recognizing that need to put more emphasis on um, our interviewing and therapeutic um, alliance skills or relational competence in, with our medical students, but it's still, you know, it's still emerging. It's still an emerging priority um, that I think medical students, I think medical students themselves are demonstrating their wish for more training in that field. You know, it's um, interesting. My, my late uncle Saul, who was a general practitioner back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, would say to you, uh, you need to do a better job in med school today of teaching doctors to listen because the patient will really tell you what's going on that's right that's right i mean you can you can be a better physician and diagnostician by being an excellent listener and letting the patient tell you what's going on just like sherlock holmes you know most of the time sherlock holmes listens to a story and and figures out what's happened to a person right it, yes. it's a, it, you know the patient will tell you probably 75 percent of what you need to know to make the right diagnosis and, you know, I think the other point that I wanted to make that was in the paper that physicians and, and healthcare systems really need to be aware of is patients and caregivers don't see themselves as a package deal. Um, and that is that they have, I, they have the same goals, but they have very different needs. And part of that is, you know, that um, 
they are that patients and caregivers are unique individuals and they need each other and they want for the, the, they want ultimately for their loved one or the patient themselves to have a good outcome but the way they get there in the in their role in the process is not it's not one in the same and we need to see them as both individual stakeholders and both as our patients you know both as people we have um, a kind of fiduciary responsibility to and that came out and when we don't it can create a tension in that very you know critical relationship that we depend on for our healthcare system to function really um, that critical relationship between patient and caregiver uh, needs to be supported and and preserved and we if by putting undue burden on caregivers not valuing caregivers, not giving them enough input into the discharge planning undermines that really important relationship. Well, and that's, you know, I think uh, probably at at the top of the list of most of the caregivers that we work with, that's absolutely um, the case, is that most of the interactions they experience, it's it's what are you going to do for the patient, what are you going to do, you know, it's about the patient, the patient, the patient, and nobody really asks caregiver you know, are you going to be, again, are, are you willing to do this? Are you able to do this? What else do you need? You know, how would you like to structure it? Um, you know, I can think of examples where the caregiver really isn't ready to have the patient. All of a sudden, they're going to discharge at 4 p.m. on Thursday, um, and nobody was going to be home on Friday because they weren't expecting to discharge this soon, and all of a sudden, they feel like they're being dumped on as the caregiver, right. that this person's coming home and that they have absolutely no choice and no say in the matter. So should a caregiver speak up when that happens? Absolutely. I mean, the, the caregivers that had the most um, positive experiences were the ones who were involved in discharge planning early on. And so, you know, if, um, you know, if it's possible to engage with case management at the very earliest stage of a hospital stay and um, stay in continuous communication with the, 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 at least the discharge planner, if not the whole, you know, the, the care team, um, that will help you understand how things are going so you're not suddenly taken off guard uh, with, you know, a plan being implemented the next day. How do you know, so, who, the, how do you know who the discharge planner is? They never, <laughs> inter- they never introduce themselves. Yes, that's a real that's a real problem because sometimes they don't they don't even come into the scene until the last twenty four hours and so, you know it's 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 a difficult situation for a caregiver to be in because they have to assert, you know they have to assert, be assertive and they have to you know kind of make demands on the system that they're relying on to take care of their loved one and it's a it's kind of a vulnerable pop, uh, situation to be in and. I recently read an article about the kind of hostage bargaining position of patients and caregivers when they're in healthcare systems, especially in hospital settings, where they feel like they don't want to upset the delicate relationship with these people who are their caregivers when the situation can be very tenuous for their loved ones. For, so for, fear, they'll, wow. for fear they'll turn on them. Wow. Yes, that, that's inter- right. interesting. That's scary. Well, we in the minute and a half that we have left, what, what's next? What happens from here? You're, you're still in the middle of the study. You're wrapping it up. What happens next? So at this point, um, we have got our... These findings that we published uh, were our first stage preliminary findings, our focus group findings, and from that, we created um, a, a large survey and we conducted site visits at um, over 40 hospitals who partnered with us. 
to um, help us administer more than 9,000 surveys to patients and caregivers um, across the nation. And we also did a number of surveys with um, some uh, providers, physicians, and other post-acute providers. And that data is now being cleaned and analyzed and ready for, um, will be ready for reporting sometime this fall. So uh, those will be really important findings. Um, they will marry these uh, qualitative as well as our quantitative findings to tell the full story of um, how patients and what matters most to patients and caregivers and what services in the care transitions are most likely to lead to the thing, those outcomes that matter most to Got to stop so, you right there. We, we, we are flat out of time, but thank you. I'd love to get you back well, at I some say, point. We've got to have you back to hear the end of the story exactly. after the results come out and you start kind of rolling some of this out. We'd yeah. love to have and you back. And we didn't even talk about uh, reducing hospital readmissions, which is really an important part of this. We'll do that next time. And thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Suzanne Mitchell. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel on Caregiver SOS On Air. Guess what's up next? Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that uh, you're newer to WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. Nurse practitioner Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Be there. We're so pleased you are sticking with us right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host Carol Zernio. We bring you Take 10 at the close of every Caregiver SOS On Air program. And we are joined by a nationally known psychotherapist and an expert in not only caregiving but addiction as well. Dr. Jamie Heisman joins us. And Jamie, Carol's got a great topic for us. Great, as usual. As usual. So we've been talking a lot about technology lately and obviously you know there's all this talk in the news about artificial intelligence and virtual reality and so there's there's a lot of technology that's coming down the path uh, for caregiving and I'm wondering is there is there what does that mean for us what does that mean is caregivers allowing technology to help and what does that mean for the care recipient well, that's a great, great uh, question, to be frank with you, because I know it's, it's inevitable. I mean, technology to support family caregiving is, is the new craze. Let's face it, there's 90 million, I hear, estimates uh, up to, including caregivers of special needs children, uh, caregivers in the country. So they're really, in terms of supply and demand, uh, it's really difficult to meet that sort of demand. So technology is the, the next step. Uh, I was at a conference. Um, we all know Gail Hunt, right? Yes, with the Alliance for, a, National Alliance for Caregiving. 
You bet, you bet. And I was having a conversation with her about the inevitable nature of caregiving and whether it was a good or bad thing. And I, I understand that caregivers, patients, and health care providers now need to look to te- technology um, just to make people's lives easier. I just believe that I'm not sure that the cure is better than the sickness. How's that? Well, one example that uh, uh, Carol and I were talking about uh, in, in a caregiver caregiving situation or maybe in a nursing home is to have a, a virtual reality uh, opportunity to tour your childhood home or your or where you used to live or take a walk with your dog that is no longer here I think that's a great idea, and I think that in a skilled nursing or assisted living facility or anywhere where there is actual social programming that's already a part of the milieu, I think the technology works fabulous. And your idea of exactly that is an amazing tool, and it would just be just what the doctor ordered. Where I believe technology falls short is when we bring it to our home environment to replace the human touch. Well, in, in the example, we also had an example of that I was I was sharing that I had been in a conference where they had an in-home device, you know, that reminds you to take your meds, eat right, take a walk. And within, you know, a few days, the man is, has given his monitor to some kid to run around the neighborhood because he doesn't want to take a walk. But he doesn't want his kid to know, his son to know who bought him the device that he's not actually out walking. No, exactly. I think there is more shame and stigma in, t- in terms of us using technology as a replacement for humans as well. Um, I also believe that it kind of lets us off the hook a little bit too much. I know in China there have uh, new laws and regulations, literally, that can imprison a family member if they don't take care of their loved one on a personal, well-coordinated basis. And I know that America is a, uh, basically a country that we're kind of detached. We're not community-minded. And so I think that technology kind of takes us off the hook of what we really need to do, which is to connect with our loved ones. So you'd feel the same way about robots that provide that warm touch and cuddly feeling? I do. I do. Exactly. You know, robots, in my mind, conjure up the Jetsons. Of course, that conjures up my age, Ron, really quickly. Well, I remember the Jetsons, too. Yes, you and I both would, well, for well, sure. We all remember. Who doesn't? Everybody remembers the Jetsons because they're still rerunning it on TV. That's true. But remember when the Jetsons, it looked like it was like a snowman with an engine in the back, and it would come up to you, and then the stomach would open up, and out would come a drink, or out would come yeah, a Yeah, I, I want that. Yeah. <laughs> you may want it because you Rosie. have a lot of social connections. In fact, you're one of the top influential people in senior care in this country. People come to you and they know you. That's right. But and I want Rosie alone, the robot to bring me a drink. Right. It's perfect for you, Carol. You got it. But when you have it at home alone with your loved one and that's their form of stimuli, um, it's problematic. Well, in Japan, in fact, you were at a presentation where they demonstrated some of these robots. Well, it was a robot, but it was a robot pet, right? It's a seal that, you know, will make purring sounds and, and be happy when you pet it and respond like a, a real animal, but it was, you know, fairly indestructible in terms of being able to hurt it. Now, that one really galls me because there's so many dogs, cats out there that need a home that really could connect. And I so believe that animals are wonderful uh, if you will, you know, caring tool if for somebody who lives alone or can have that sort of uh, a friendship with the, uh, the the feline world. I just believe that when it's a robot now, we've really sunk to new levels. That's, inter- that's interesting. Now, you said the word shame and stigma associated with technology. 
Do you think that as a society that is so enthralled with technology, smart technology, that we will be looking down eventually on families who don't embrace this technology to solve problems? That's interesting. I was kind of thinking the other way around. I was thinking of a mother saying, you know, I haven't talked to my son or daughter in a while, but this wonderful, you know, robot comes into my room, you know, every few hours and, uh, and says, hi, mom, hi, dad, in their voice. And at some point in time, the shame and stigma, I think, is going to come to, what are you really doing with mom or dad? Ah, so the other way around. Okay, interesting. But you, I could see it happening the other way as well. Yes, I can, too. I, I certainly can. I mean, the, the, listen, the trends in caregiving right now, as far as technology goes, are endless. I've seen it, you know, with GPS technology, uh, the personal uh, emergency response systems we've seen, like you said, medication reminders. They're all there, and the applications are coming out fast and furiously. But we always have to start. We have to remember this, at least we do in therapy, that you have to start where the patient is at and not where you think they need to be at. Because that's where you lose them. That's that story you just had where granddad just gave the technology to somebody to run outside and play with it. I told Carol about another one where a doctor prescribed a pedometer for one of his patients. True story here in San Antonio. Uh, And she came back a month later and he asked about uh, looking at the pedometer and he went back and checked and she had an amazing number of footsteps. Only discovered later in conversation she'd been putting it on her dog. That's funny. I mean, that's ironic. Now, here's a realistic story, which is even worse. Um, I've seen seniors with, you know, Fitbits and and things that count the steps. The sad part is when you sit down with them, you say, wow, you've got 6,000 steps. That's amazing. They said, yes, I went around my house. It's a three-bedroom, two-bath, about 30 times because there was nobody there, and I was depressed. Wow. Oh, see, that's different. So you're measuring different things. That is depressing. Well, you know, but but in context, in context, it may work. I'm sorry, Carol. But the steps are healthy. The steps are healthy, keeping you alive to be lonely, which will kill you. It's like 15 cigarettes a day. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, I think this is a perfect illustration, though, um, you know, about there are the goods, uh, the good, the good side of technology and the downside of technology. It's like the Will Smith movie where the robot saves him instead of the kid. The car goes under the water, there's a child in it, and the robot calculates that the adult has a better um, survival chance than the small child and saves him instead, which yeah, you know, sets be- off the whole thing. But, but I mean, but there is that, there, you know, because we haven't even begun to think about, there's a lot of ethical dilemmas that are inherent in the use of technology. Well, artificial intelligence is the, the boom industry now. Well, and, 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 and they're also saying we should be terrified. I am. I am. Are you terrified? I am too. Okay, good. We're all terrified. Excellent. But I I don't want to be Debbie Downer as far as technology goes because I truly believe in the the applications that both of you are speaking about, and I think it can enhance and enrich the caregiving experience. My issue is only that it doesn't replace the caregiving experience. Right. And and maybe it's like that our diet, you know, and this is this food is good for you, it's bad for you. You know, everything in moderation. So a little bit of technology to help out could be a good thing, but all technology, no human touch, not so good. And no, I, go ahead, but, Jamie. No, I was, I've been at Boomer conferences so often, I think that should be the informed consent that goes out with these brand new technologies. Is This is how you incorporated it within the family caregiving uh, world. Yeah, can we can we apply that also to technology, gaming technology for our kids, that everything in moderation... Absolutely. I've got a seven-year-old right now that is totally, totally just uh, like a heat-seeking missile. 
<laughs> turn the tablet off. Right. That's right. Hey, Jamie, thank you. Flat out of time. Uh, as we think about uh, you coming on every week on Take 10, how do folks get a hold of you if they'd like to do that? Well, they can always get me through anybody at Caregiver SOS, which I hope they're frequenting often. Or you can get me through DRJ, which is Dr. J at drjamie.com, D-R-J-A-M-I-E. Thank you very much. Take 10 on 930 AM, The Answer. Ron Aaron for Carol Zernil and Dr. Jamie Heisman. You hear us Sundays at 6 p.m. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air. Presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer.